Welcome to Saints and Humans, a podcast for chaplains who are also human and sometimes better at being humans than saints. I will be sharing my own experiences of being a chaplain and interviewing others to hear their stories and the stories of their families, as well as learning from colleagues we work with in related fields, because it's our own humanity that unites us on this very spiritual journey through a very mortal life. Jones. I am the director of chaplain services at Sutter Roseville Medical Center in Sacramento, well, just north of Sacramento, California. I've been doing this for about 20 years, and I'm also an ACPE certified educator. How did you get started doing what you were doing all the way back in the beginning? How did you even find out about chaplaincy? Uh, that's a good question. So way back in 1996, I was interested in uh, going into seminary. I, well, I wanted to study and go into academia. And so I went to the Graduate Theological Union. My dad was the institute director in Berkeley for a long time. So he suggested I apply there at the Graduate Theological Union for a master's degree. And then I was looking to get a PhD after that. And uh, as we were living in Provo at the time, I'd graduated BYU a couple years earlier. And I was talking to a friend of ours who was in the National Guard, letting him know I was going to Berkeley to go to the Graduate Theological Union. He said, oh, we could use chaplains in the military. And I just never thought about it as a potential option. So I went and met with the church uh, military relations committee. Uh, their chair up there, I can't remember his name at the time, but we had an interview. They endorsed me for military chaplaincy, and I started seminary at the Graduate Theological Union that fall of 96. And then around February, March, I realized that I was not really interested in being in the military. Uh, it was something that I thought I would like, but as I got more understanding of it and got closer to my swearing-in date, I just realized it wasn't the right fit for me. And I went to school after I made the decision and called the church and let them know I wasn't going to go through with the military. And I uh, went to school. My couple of my friends said I looked pretty downcast, which I was feeling kind of lost. I didn't know what I, I'd gotten interested in chaplaincy. And so now I didn't know what I was going to do. And one of my friends at the Lutheran seminary I was attending, so Graduate Theological Union's nine different religious seminaries, and I was housed at the Lutheran seminary. So I got onto campus, and they suggested I look, I talked to our contextual education advisor about CPE, and I'd never heard of CPE. Uh, but I went in and talked to her. She explained a summer internship that they were still looking for people at Mount Diablo Medical Center in Concord which was my hometown. So I got an application and sent it to their, their CPE program, got an interview the following week and was accepted. And then I did my first uh, unit of CPE at Mount Diablo Medical Center on the, in the summer of 97. 
and fell in love with it. The day I got in, I realized that's what I wanted to do. So I went back to school, and then on my third year of seminary, I did a residency year also at uh, Mount Diablo so I could finish my four units of CPE. And then found a job uh, shortly after that in hospice uh, for 10 hours a week. And within a couple of months, we built that up to a full-time position. And I worked with the Sutter BNA and Hospice uh, in Concord for three years. And then I got uh, the opening up here in Roseville came up. And so I decided to apply and ended up up here. And then that, that's at least how I got into chaplaincy. How would you explain CPE for someone who doesn't know what it is? It is. I, I joke that it took me the CPE hours of 1,600 hours of training to learn how to shut up and just be quiet. But uh, <laughs> the biggest part of CPE is um, it's looking at yourself and really seeing what you bring into the room when you walk in. So there are some skills that are trained uh, in, you know, how do you approach a patient, uh, getting used to being around, say, a dead body. But ultimately, it's understanding what happens to me when I walk into a room. Do I get nervous? I, I tend to have a nervous smile. So I'll walk into rooms if I'm a little nervous with a smile on my face, not realizing that the patient who just got diagnosed with cancer doesn't need a smiling chaplain to walk into their room. So it's realizing, studying myself. And so I have myself that I'm using as I go into rooms. And then I have a peer group that get to reflect back to me what they are seeing from me. And if you really take advantage of the CPD process, it's all about learning about ourselves and then how others see us being. And you do that through the, the verbatims, you do it through your IPR groups where you're talking with each other and chaplaining each other, your individual supervision, and then you'll have the didactic training, which is more at the education side of it. But most of it is really learning about yourself and what you bring into a room when you go into with patients. What about even just chaplaincy? How would you define what a chaplain is? My job description that I give to people is my job is to do nothing. And I'll, I'll share that with a lot of people. They It's usually to just get a little blank look on their face as I try to explain that. And then I'll explain, well, my job is I have no agenda when I walk into a patient's room other than to make sure the patient knows they don't have to be alone and that I'm available for them for whatever they need in terms of emotional support or spiritual support. So I, I don't, I, I don't, if they're discharging or there's issues with their discharge plan and I'm asked by the discharge planner to go in and talk to the patient because they seem a little irate and are hoping I can get them discharged, that's not my job to get them to agree to the discharge plan. It's my job just to be with them and let them share what they need to share, get the emotions out, absorb those emotions, journey with them, and then hopefully, that will help them make better decisions because their heads are clear. But it's not to make them make a decision. It's not to force them into a choice. It's not to lead them in any one direction. I journey alongside them and make sure that they know they're not alone. But it's, uh, so that's the doing no thing part. I, I'm not there for any particular reason. So I really don't have sides when I walk into a patient's room. That's, that's one of the joys of being a chaplain is we don't take sides at all. We're merely there to to be with the patient, to let them get out of their system what they need to get out, to accompany them. One of my favorite visits was a few weeks ago was a patient who was uh, dying. Uh, and I went in, her husband was there. She was non-communicative and he really didn't want to talk a lot, 
but so I just sat down with him for a little while and then he'd ask a question and I'd just, you know, answer. He'd be like, she's breathing weird. Is that normal? And I'd say, yeah, it's pretty normal. And then he'd be quiet for a while. And I, I honestly, after about an hour thought, you know, I'll probably leave. I don't seem to be having much of an effect or, you know, it's not really doing him much good that I'm here. And then his daughter called and he got on the phone with her while I was there. And I thought, Oh, my time to sneak out. And his response to his daughter was, I heard the party said, I'm here with the chaplain and it is just so good to have somebody sitting here with me. I'm so scared and alone and the chaplain's here with me. So I don't have to feel that way. And I thought, Oh, that is exactly why I'm here. And I ended up with that patient for another hour while she passed away. And so it, it, that is really the root of the job is being able to be in that space and just you're a non-anxious presence in an anxious time. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. You you shared that story about your dying patients from a couple weeks ago. What was that like when you were a hospice chaplain and, and that was your experience day after day? Uh, funnily enough, I guess funnily is the word, um, I was, I've been with more patients as they took their last breaths in the hospital for sure than I was ever with hospice. Um, and a lot of, I always thought I'd be with more people as they died in hospice, but you're, you're with dying patients, but they're not necessarily dying as you're with them in the hospital. You're right here. Somebody's actively dying. They call you into the room and then you're there as they expire. Uh, but with hospice, it, it was a little bit of a, a shift in my expectations when I went into a patient's house and met with them because they were already there in the conversation. They knew they were dying. And I, I loved hospice. It was actually a, a thrill to be part of it. And I, I really grew to appreciate the, the benefits of it. But being with patients that know they're dying, it's a different type of discussion than being with patients who were just told they're dying and aren't necessarily ready to talk about it. And so it's very fulfilling when somebody's willing to open up their fears and open up their concerns with you around their actual death. Talk about, you know, what's it going to be like, chaplain? Do you know what happens after I take my last breath? Am I still around? And being able to explore what they believe around those things. And then sometimes they'd ask directly what I believe. So I'd share what I believed and we'd be able to talk back and forth about it because it was a wide open conversation because everybody knew they were dying. Whereas in the hospital, you know, the patient may want to talk about it, but they don't want to talk about it in front of their family because the family's still holding on to hope. And so you don't have those types of same types of conversations. So I'm, I'm with more dying people in the hospital as they die, and then I'm with more dying patients in the hospital as they're through the process of dying in hospice. But I, I loved it. I I will probably retire from here and then eventually find my way into a hospice position because it was very fulfilling. That makes so much sense about the difference between a dying patient in a hospital and a dying patient in hospice where you said it's already the patient is already there in the conversation they already understand what's going on what what about different faith traditions you you obviously have so much experience now but what has that been like over your career throughout your ministry of serving and working with and being alongside people of different faith traditions it's been uh, unfortunately i the community I'm in is pretty homogenous in terms of it's a pretty suburban white middle-class Protestant or Catholic community. Uh, so most of the diversity I worked with was actually more in my hospice years and in my CPE, but I, I loved it. I loved getting involved in 
uh, other faith traditions and being invited to be part of their practices. I, I know I've shared it with our chaplain's conference. My dad wrote an article for the Ensign in 1977 about respect for other people's beliefs. And so I, I was raised with this idea of, you know, as long as it doesn't go against what I believe, I can participate, I can be part of it. So, I've, you know, I've gone to Mass, I've gone to Shabbat services, I've done evening prayers with our Muslims, uh, families in our chapel. I've, and, and it's always amazing and fascinating just how other people approach faith, and I've learned a lot on how to approach our faith uh, through watching them and how they approach and the devotion they have and recognizing, you know, it's amazing they're so devoted to that, yet I'm not devoted uh, in my ways to the types of worship we do, and so maybe I should become more devoted and finding more meaning out of our practices. But the, the one thing I've really learned over the years, and I, I work with my students, my CP students here in it, is while I've learned a lot about another, other religions, every patient practices their religion in an individual way. So whether or not I understand the Sikh tradition does not mean I'll understand the patient when they're here. So I always take the time to ask how do they practice their faith? What do they need from me to help them practice their faith and trust that they'll teach me because if they they are really needing it and they need me to help them, I, I will do that and they will be gracious that we're helping. In most cases, if they are practicing in their faith, they already have the connections to their faith community. So I don't need to do a whole lot for them in terms of that type of worship or religious practice, but they may invite me to join in if there are prayers being said, and I'm happy to do that with them. But I I, I just I was kind of disappointed uh, when I first got into chaplaincy. I thought all my studying in world religions would really pay off, and I realized how little I need any of that because the patients will teach me what they need on an individual basis each time I meet them, those patients. Everyone is so unique, not just in their faith or identity expression, but in, in who they are and what they think about themselves and how they present that to the world, how they present that to you as the chaplain. And then even, as you said earlier, how they present that in front of their family. What are some of the tricksy situations that you've been in when there were some discrepancies with that and part of being a chaplain was being present while they ironed some of that out? We've had some, I mean, some of the trickiest is typically we'll have older men who are dying and their very devout Catholic wives are wanting them to get baptized or, you know, will hurry and baptize them themselves to get the priest in and they were never Catholic. And so, you know, some of those are tricky. I, one of my favorite stories actually happened to, we had a rabbi who was a volunteer in our program and he would cover the holidays for us, Christmas and Easter. And he was asked to come in to meet with a patient. And uh, so it was a 92-year-old man, and his 30-year-old uh, granddaughter was at the bedside. And she said, Chaplain, my, my grandpa's never been baptized. Can you baptize him for me? And so he called me up. This was uh, about 1 o'clock in the morning. And he called me. He's like, I don't know what to do, Gerald. I said, well, go let her know you're Jewish. And I, I said, if you're up for it, you can do it. But, you know, I, I'll, we've got instructions to show you how to do it in the department if, you, if you're if you up for it. But you just let her know you're Jewish so at least she understands what's happening. And so he went back and said, you know, I'm, I'm willing to do the baptism, but I do need, need to let you know I'm Jewish. And she looked at him and said, ugh. 
Of course. I've been trying my whole life to get my grandpa baptized, and of course the only chaplain who shows up is Jewish. <laughs> he wins again. <laughs> and, you know, that... It, so we'll get those tricky situations. A lot of people will want to make sure, you know, was my loved one saved before they died? And I'll get phone calls quite often in the office. Hey, my, my grandma died or my, my brother died. I haven't seen him in 15 years, but I just want to make sure did, did he say the right prayer before he was died and or before he died. And I mean, that's not my job as a chaplain to assure that people embrace a faith tradition. We're non-proselytizing. That's not our agenda. But I'll get those calls, particularly as the department director, asking, you know, did these things happen? And I have to have those tough conversations to say, you know, unfortunately, I, I can't tell you. I don't know. Or I was the chaplain with them. But, you know, that wasn't anything we particularly talked about. But I can tell you they were a good person, at least from what I heard. Or they recognized that there was more than, you know, just them in this life, and that there's a higher power. Or I been asked to be in there when atheists have taken their last breath just to guarantee that they're still atheists and prove to the world that atheists still die in foxholes and uh so yeah some of those are tricky but it's as long as i know it's not my job to have to fix any of those things and i'm clear with my own self as i go into those situations they might be sticky but it's not my job to have to fix it i can just be with them in the angst and the frustration around it how, what about the angst of other chaplains? As a supervisory, you've got some people with some experience and you've also got, I assume, some fresh people who are just learning how to do it. How do you walk or navigate or help them navigate some of those situations for themselves when they are a different faith tradition or even members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Yeah, so I will, I mean, again, I teach them the same thing. It's really not their job to have to, to provide anything specific, but ask the families what they're needing. I, I, it's very clear with all of our students and staff, they do not have to do anything that violates their own personal uh, theology. So if, if it's, you know, providing communion to somebody and they come from a closed communion tradition, then it's not, they don't have to do it. It's their job to make sure it gets provided. So we have we have an Orthodox rabbi, a, a Lubavitcher rabbi, uh, who's one of our students, and he's a he's unable to touch women as part of the his faith system. Uh, saying prayers, obviously, in the name of Jesus Christ, he wouldn't do. So he's had some tricky situations where his the learning he's really had to do in in terms of becoming a chaplain is how do I exit myself from these situations and make sure the family and patient doesn't realize this is an issue. So when he's been asked to pray and, you know, the, the Catholic family is asked him to pray the Our Father, he'll say, you know what, I, I'm Jewish, but let me get somebody in here right away who'll do that with you. And so he'll get straight to the office and get somebody in because he doesn't want to go against his own beliefs, but he also needs to make sure that family gets provided for. And all of our students know that. It's amazing, uh, particularly, um, well, within a lot of the faith traditions, how much people are willing to stretch from, I will absolutely not do that, to, you know, actually, this probably wouldn't be a bad thing, now that I'm really thinking about it, when they walk into the room. And it's just, you know, I'm, I'm Protestant, and I've got a Catholic patient, and they want to do the Hail Mary together, and I don't believe you know, and praying to Mary, and all of a sudden I'm in the room and I'm looking and thinking, you know what, it's, I'm really doing it for the patient, I'm not doing it for me, and I think God would understand, so I'll go ahead and read the Hail Mary. 
And I, so I've been there as that's happened. I've been in situations where I've realized, you know, I, I don't think that goes against anything in the church. So yeah, actually I could provide, you know, a, a Buddhist reading. That's, that's fine with me. Or I could do a chant, a Hindu chant, because there's nothing in there that violates anything I believe. So yeah, let's do that. Because again, it's all about the patient and what the patient needs. I'm just reflecting on so many experiences from CPE as you share. <laughs> And, and there's something there's something so rich about the discussions in CPE that happen with peers and with your supervisor about these kinds of things, not just the topics of them about what is right or what is wrong or what do I believe or what do you believe, but learning who you are yourself, what your testimony is in and the boundaries of what that is and also how permeable some of those things are. The difference between this is a violation so I just can't do it and having having the courage to to say that to yourself so that you can navigate with nuance that with a family or a patient, but also other things of opening yourself up to new experiences that you've not been through before just because you haven't been exposed to them or because it isn't a part of your own tradition, but it's not necessarily in violation of it. And I think it's just such a beautiful thing. Yeah, I, I tell I mean, I, I, I've learned it myself and I work with our students on it. Our, our job is not to change what you believe. Our job is to help you really define where your boundaries are around your belief. And when you find that boundary, then it's then you can navigate a lot easier with other faith traditions and, and things that might be outside that boundary. Because now I know I won't do those. And I, I can't, and I know why I can't do those and why, I, but I also know that if I'm in that situation, I can navigate around it instead of being caught off guard when somebody asks you to do something in a room and you're like, oh my gosh, I, I've never done that. I don't know. What, how do I say no? Or it's like, I already know that's something I, I can't provide, but I will make sure it gets provided and just graciously exiting and allowing the family to know that we will do everything we can for you. We, we, we do have a growing number of like pagan patients uh, and animists and they, and, and also people who are very, very much into like holistic healing and spirituality that way that may or may not be part of the, the work of our typically very religious students. And so when they're asked to go in and, you know, provide like uh, to help out with a Druid ceremony, well, you know, if your faith says you can't really do that and you realize you can't do that, that's okay. But let's find the right people and who to call and let the family know we're doing everything we can to help you. There's so much about that that's just communication, too. Yeah, it's just, just being open to it and realizing that none of it is wrong in terms of the family care. It's just may not be right for me in, in that sense. I mean, there's... But I also agree, I, my testimony of the gospel is so much stronger um, having to figure out where those boundary lines are because I know where my rootedness is in the gospel. I, I know what keeps me in, I know what holds me here, and I know what I love about it because I've been experiencing uh, you know, traditions and practices outside of it. And so I really know what grounds me, and, and that grounding is in the gospel. I you you really have to do that work and and really that's ultimately what cpe is all about is 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 learning that yourself i remember 
my first unit in CPE and I felt like at the very beginning it felt like as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and a woman that for people outside of my church there was so much I could not do and people inside my church there was so much I could not do that it was really took me some time to look at that and why and where where those not just where those limits are but that they weren't limits that what bounds means and how to be within those bounds and and what my resources are and how to connect with the team around me and that I wasn't just a sole person out in the middle of nowhere trying to do everything but that the communication and the teamwork and the resources around me that that is how the church works anyway when we're serving anyone in the community much less in in a specific role within our job yeah absolutely and that's i i love chaplaincy because again we all come from different traditions and but the work is the same and so the more you get used to being out there and you know just because you're a member of the church and feel like okay i'm not able to do that we're not the only ones who feel that way uh the catholics feel that way the protestants feel that way the buddhists feel that way the Jewish chaplains feel that way. Muslim chaplains feel that way. There's all we all have our boundaries that we can't cross, and we're all discovering what really holds us into our traditions. And I think that's where that commonality with within chaplaincy really happens. And we can know that there's a really good network within the church to help us and support us, but also just within chaplaincy itself, as we're all out there trying to do our best and really just helping the people that we're working with. I think that that's part of one of my favorite things about chaplaincy is I feel like it really helped me reclaim some of my own spiritual development that happened before I converted. I'm a convert. And so I did a lot of exploring of different religions and a lot of development of what my faith practice meant to me before I found the church. And I think initially as I was learning to make my own covenants and and getting baptized and going to the temple and going through that whole process myself and building my testimony, it wasn't that I had to give those things up because that was all good things. Those things led me to the gospel, I feel like, but I I missed having a connection to them somehow. And so as chaplaincy unfolded as part of my life experience, it really reconnected me full circle in ways that um, were just comforting in the beauty of that, of seeing other people who love the Savior so, so much or other people who have an understanding that we are spiritual beings as well or other people who have these different truths and honoring how that's a part of our story as humans. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great journey. It's a, I, I fully appreciate, I mean, just the, the process that you have to go through to get into this journey. How have you seen chaplaincy change over time? It's definitely grown. Uh, when I started, I mean, they're, they're, within the church, it's changed. I was um, one of just a small handful of chaplains uh, that were in. There were uh, couple of women uh, who are doing ch- chaplaincy and a couple of men doing chaplaincy, uh, healthcare chaplaincy, non-military. When I started back in 96, and now we, I mean, if you've gone to our 
annual conference, there's a, a lot of people doing healthcare chaplaincy. It's, it's grown quite a bit. Um, I mean, the biggest has been the endorsement factor for within the church. I, when I came in, there was no endorsement process. Uh, we, I'd sent a letter in asking for endorsement. I got a very kind letter back saying we, we really support you in your desire to be certified, uh, but we just don't have an endorsement process for healthcare chaplains. So I was able to actually use that for my certification uh, with the Association of Professional Chaplains. So anyway, so uh, let's see, I was back at, I got this letter from the church. Uh, based, so I was able to get board certified with the Association of Professional Chaplains, um, which then allowed me to use that board certification for my ACPE educator training process because they still needed that same endorsement. But uh, when they endorsed us and actually gave us official endorsement about 10 years ago, that was a huge change. And then shortly after, um, and when they made that endorsement process, that's when they started endorsing women as well. It was all at the same time. And I think uh, the endorsement of women in the chaplaincy in the church has been really good. Uh, if you notice at our conferences, it, we tend to have more I think there's more women healthcare chaplains and men healthcare chaplains within the church, which is marvelous. And it's also a great addition to the overall chaplain conference. And then I believe, I guess it's just this last year that they started endorsing women for military chaplaincy as well. So those are some big changes within the church that, you know, 25 years ago when I started this, I didn't know if that would ever change. So that's huge for chaplaincy. And then in the overall chaplaincy world, uh, the growth of chaplaincy in terms of palliative care has been huge. And it's just that there are, while hospitals are still not required to have chaplaincy by any certifying body, there is a lot of uh, demand for palliative care. Certified palliative care programs need to have chaplaincy involved in spiritual support, along with Medicare for hospice chaplaincy. And so there's been a proliferation of hospice patients and hospice is opening up. It used to be like 10% of deaths happened on hospice. I know it's now it's in the 60 or 70% of, of deaths. Uh, so that, I mean, it's a hospices are growing. A lot of chaplains are going into hospice. It's required by Medicare. Palliative care is growing. A lot of chaplains are going into palliative care, which is driving up the demand for uh, chaplaincy certification bodies. So there's now a number of different bodies that do certification for chaplaincy and a number of different bodies that do training for chaplaincy. I, of course, am biased towards the ones I'm part of, but that's that's been a big change in chaplaincy as well. You mentioned our October conferences. How how would you describe our chaplain trainings? What What is that about for people who are learning about chaplaincy or need to get connected to those? Uh, so I, I think they're great. Uh, for a while, I mean, we weren't necessarily invited as healthcare chaplains because it was really a military chaplains conference. And then about six, seven years ago, they started to uh, make sure that we were all included as, uh, as non-military chaplains. So what we do is uh, they have a Friday night dinner and typically have a general authority speak at that dinner. And then general conference on Saturday and Sunday are part of that conference. They work with the military to get military chaplains uh, enough leave so they can come and attend it as an, a, a faith group training process. For those of us in healthcare, it's typically a continuing education event or a conference. They also have border patrol chaplains who are there and then auxiliary chaplains for like the FBI or police chaplains. 
And then on Monday and Tuesday, they have a large group events where there's training for most of the day for the chaplains. They do a separate uh, lunch on Monday for the chaplains and then the chaplain spouses, which I think is uh, it's changing a little bit on how it used to be because it used to be all male military chaplains at the chaplains luncheon and then all female spouses at the spouse luncheon. And now with healthcare chaplaincy being included and a lot of women being included in both both groups, you also have men now included in both groups, in the spouses group and in the chaplain group. So that that's, I, it's interesting to see how those goes. I'm wondering if they'll just eventually blend those together uh, in the future. I don't know. Uh, but then they have a breakout session, which has been a lot of fun over the years that I've been uh, taking the lead on, on on a few of those where we go through and talk about professional chaplaincy in healthcare settings and how, you know, just ideas on how to make us better at what we do. Uh, we've done training on like family systems and training on uh, some spiritual assessment techniques, training on uh, ethics. And so those have all been really helpful as we get together in those small groups. But mostly it's every year we get to see people. I, you know, seeing Emily at those conferences, that's about the only time we see each other in person. So it's it's a great time to connect with friends and just realize we have a much larger community out there than we may assume. It can be pretty lonely if you're a chaplain, say in a hospice, you might be the only chaplain on your whole team. And then if you're a member of the church, then you might be the only member of the church in chaplaincy in your whole region. Or, you know, I'm the only member in the Northern California, at least, that's part of our professional healthcare chaplaincy groups. So it can be pretty lonely. And when you go in every year to these conferences, you realize you do actually have a much larger community that you're part of. That's what my experience was as well. I'm definitely the only member chaplain in a very extended area around where I live. At least it, that's historically been the case. And being able to go in October is just a powerful experience in that there is some sort of, not just the connection between us, but almost like a relief of being home for half a minute. I don't know how to describe it, where it's so funny because it's not rest because we actually do a lot of stuff and we're learning things and we're running around downtown or, or, or around campus and, and there's a lot happening. So it's not rest, like take a nap rest, but there's something spiritually that is nourishing and just fills me up. And I don't know that I could have gotten through CPE or those early years of chaplaincy without having those connections and that nourishment. It was really powerful to me. Although I was in that early group of, of, of women chaplains and for the first two years, I think that we attended, my husband was the only one at the spouse's lunch or almost the only one. And so <laughs> he would send me pretty funny texts about being at the ladies lunch and and <laughs> and now and now there are so many there are so many i i have not gotten to go because of my my daughter with medical issues when i see the pictures or or hear back from my friends that just that there's so many people now and and i just it's astounding to me that that feeling like you were saying of i'm not actually alone because sometimes it feels very much like it 
I think I think that's one of the reasons that we talked about doing the podcast and starting that of having one more way to hold us connected, to hold us together, to keep us in touch with each other a little bit between conferences and to help those new chaplains that are learning the rope, so to speak, or learning who is who and, and, and what we do and staying all together with that. What else would you want to share about chaplaincy or what your experience is like or what you would want to tell experienced chaplains or new chaplains? Is there anything you would want to pass along that we've not been able to touch base on? I mean, it's, it, it's possible. I think that's the biggest thing is people looking into it. It's not an impossible journey. It's, it's not easy. Chaplaincy, I mean, it really did take me that 1,600 hours to learn to be quiet and learn not to, to have to try to fix. I think we come from a culture, the culture in the United States. I think there's a culture within the, the religious culture where we try to make people feel better. And that is what we think our job is to do is to help you feel better. But we, we, don't, we should not be the ones defining what better looks like. And sometimes feeling better means I've had an opportunity to sit, to cry, to feel really sad, feel really scared and not have somebody tell me it will be okay. But just to sit with me and say, this is a really sad and scary place. And that, that could be better for them. And learning how not to jump in and just help out because we think we're being helpful. They've got the church to do that. They've got the church members to do that. People will bring food. People will be there for that type of support. Um, if they're not members of our church, that they've usually got community or family or friends to do that. Nursing staff constantly is in there encouraging people. And our job is not to be the encourager. Our job is just to be with them. And I think that's the, the hardest work. And I still... I've shared a story a few times. Uh, just uh, is about a couple of years ago. I was walking out of my office, and there was a couple across the the hallway. My the chapel's right across from my door, so I you know you open the door right to the chapel. And I they were standing outside the chapel. They were embracing, and there was a third person there. And I could I was ready to go home from work, and so it's five o'clock, and I started to head out, and I thought okay. Well, you know, I'm done. Somebody will take care of it. And I got halfway down the hallway until I realized, you know, that's my job to take care of it. And I turned around and was with them. And so I, I'm still learning. You know, I've been doing this 25 years, and I'm still learning on a daily basis how to really pay attention on being with people, not trying to just worry about myself and how I'm feeling, but making sure I'm there to be empathetic with them. And it's a never-ending process. And, and I ended up with that family. I went in the chapel with them. He, the brother of the wife and the couple, he just found out he's terminal and he had a couple months to live. They were discharging him home. He could walk, but he's going home on hospice. And we talked for 20 minutes. They asked for a prayer. They were very grateful. And I, you know, left feeling humbled because I honestly could have just walked by and not thought about them at all. So that 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 for me is the biggest lesson I've learned in terms of all my training is I'm still learning about some of the things I learned my first day of CPE. They're not embedded and it doesn't mean, it's not like riding a bicycle. It does go away if I don't practice it and keep reminding myself, I've got to, you know, pay attention. I've got to be quiet. I've got to not fix this. 
So I, I, that's one thing I would definitely want to share with people and also be open for, you know, it's an adventure. It's fun. There, there's so much that we don't know out there. And I, I love how Joseph Smith always taught that, you know, we try to find truth wherever it is. And we can find some interesting little truths for our lives from our patients as we hear their stories. They, they may say something that just sparks a, an amazing insight in, into our own lives. I've, I've had a patient that I was with, oh, this is a long time ago, but I, I was just having some trouble with one of my kids and just trying to figure out, you know, and praying about it, just trying to figure out how do I approach this? And it was the patient who gave me a, a part of their story and it was an answer to my prayer. I, I, I instantly realized, okay, I was in here because I needed to hear that because that's how I need to approach my son. And it just, it, it was amazing. So I, I learned just as much from my patients as I offer my patients. It's, it's okay to learn from them. It's okay to be fascinated by them. But it's just not our job to, to tell them what they should be doing and how they should do it. And that's the hard part is when they ask and us being able to sit back and say, it's, it's okay. You don't have to have an answer. I don't have an answer for you either. And not knowing is okay. I remember my first day of CPE when my supervisor was chatting to me. I thought to get to know me because I didn't know yet how CPE works. <laughs> and, and I thought he was just getting familiar with me or my story or something. And in a way he was, it's not that that was not authentic. But he was asking about my life and, oh, you're so educated and you have these six kids, so you're a busy mom and you're really good at doing all these things. And so you know how to handle being busy. And I thought he meant like, how was I going to handle CPE with all these other responsibilities? But what he did was assign me my first patient by walking me up to the burn unit to a patient who they were trying to keep their heart rate down so you could not make any noise in the room and the patient had no family and he just whispered to me minister to them and then he walked out of the room and left me there with the patient in a coma who could not talk could not have sound could not do anything to teach me that same lesson like what you're talking about that it wasn't about what I could do or how to say the right thing or do the right thing or how to handle so much, but to just be there and to yeah. be with them. And it was a powerful lesson that has served me over and over again. And I hope has also served others, but there's something about just being present that fundamentally is so healing to us as humans. Yeah. I, I, I had the same experience, but I was assigned to the ICU in my CPE unit. And it was the same thing as I have a work with ventilated patients who couldn't communicate. And, you know, my visits initially lasted a minute. And by the time I was done with my residency, they were lasting an hour. And I was still with the patient who didn't say anything, but I felt much more connected because learning how to be with somebody is much different than learning how to do something for somebody. How did you guys, where you are, how did you all handle the pandemic? And I don't mean, I don't mean politics or, or vaccines or any controversies. I just mean that overwhelm of everybody's big feelings and an influx. Did you all like go through that? How did you all handle that? 
We did. And, and my wife's a nurse. She was on the actual COVID floor. So for almost a year, her floor was all COVID patients. She worked on a COVID floor. Uh, we were considered to be uh, necessary employees for the hospital. So all of our staff, all of our students were actually allowed to keep coming into the hospital, unlike a lot of other hospitals in the country where they sent all their chaplains home even. So we didn't have to worry about, you know, trying to do phone calls from home into the hospital. We could actually go in and visit. Sometimes we would uh, be outside the, the door and do prayers and do whatever the patients were wanting. But a number of our staff, you know, because of their own health reasons, weren't willing to visit COVID rooms. So when, you know, half our hospital was COVID patients, they were limited on who they could see. But also a number of our chaplains and students stepped up to the plate and just learned how to gown up and were willing to go in and be with, you know, those patients that were, I mean, at that time with the first first wave, people were really contagious and it, it was deadly. So people were willing to put themselves at risk. And it was, it was really scary, I would say, for, you know, it's the business I got onto. There's a lot of anger in the hospital that I would hear uh, from particularly around physicians. And a lot of the nurses would share their anger with me when they would have fellow physicians or nurses unwilling to do their jobs because of the fear of COVID. Um, they would talk to me and say, you know, we, we signed up for this. This is what it means to be in healthcare. And so I was reminded of that. Uh, I would go into COVID rooms. Uh, at one point, we only had three of our staff chaplains were able to because of health reasons with the others. So I went into quite a few or and our other staff chaplains did. And it, you know, you'd go in and just be concerned. Uh, is something going to happen? And then you know, by the time the Delta variant came, we'd all been vaccinated, so it was a lot easier to go in. And then the anger, it was interesting that the anger shifted from coworkers to patients who weren't willing to get vaccinated because the staff were still having to do the same protocols. And now they had people coming in who had a choice and decided to choose not to be vaccinated for whatever reason. And then I'm hearing the anger from them and I've got friends and I've got colleagues who also chose not to be vaccinated. And I knew both sides of the story and both, you know, multiple perspectives, but that's the job of a chaplain is we're always in the middle and we don't take sides. So I would get complaints from each side about, you know, the anger at each other. And now our numbers are finally down enough where, there's a big sigh of relief and things are getting back to normal, but it, it did affect the department. It made some things better. We started to call families of our ICU patients at home, and that's something we still continue to do to let them know we're here to support them. So there's more interaction with chaplaincy than there had been before COVID. Uh, we have a bereavement mailing program, and we started to call our bereaved families at home just to make sure they had that additional support. And so that was that's something that's continuing now that we're getting back. So it's, it's actually, I think we're going to be better in the end for having gone through it. It's uh, a lot of people are just tired of it, but we're also recognizing that we need to set the example for our staff and set the example for our community when we're the chaplains in here on, you know, we wear our, our masks. We make sure people see that we're willing to do it even if we don't like it and because that's just what we do. That, I think that's beautiful how the difficulties help transform into more effective service with some of those examples you shared. I, I, I had the, um, this 
experience this polarity of an experience where the area where we lived geographically was very anti-vax, very anti-mask, and yet I was deployed to New York. And, and at the beginning of the pandemic, like you said, before we knew what it was and before there was treatment and so many people were dying, when I was, I was deployed to New York for a part of the pandemic response and it was such a different experience from where I had left geographically and the politics there. And um, I was, it wasn't just about, oh, this is serious and so many people are dying. It was the sheer volume of people who were dying and how quickly, I mean, I, I, I know everybody knows about, like in New York, it was really bad, especially in the beginning. And, and, and I mean, it was everywhere, but um, the, the, how quickly people were dying. And I was for the first time, not just ministering to families and also staff, but also the morgue people and the transport people and all these auxiliary staff and, and related fields that in some ways I had had um, were sort of colleagues. Like I was a NICU chaplain and a and a and 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 worked on the maternity ward before. So I had done a lot of holding babies and carrying them down to the the drivers that would take them to the funeral home and things like that and so I had relationships with those people but when I went to New York and the and those people were overwhelmed and felt inadequate because they couldn't keep up with the bodies and in and, and those situations yeah. it was just a completely different experience than I had ever had before yeah, I, I would agree. It was we we are more appreciated now than I think we ever were in terms of a discipline, because we were up there on the floors, blessing hands, blessing rooms, blessing units, at a beck and call, and rounding on the staff. Uh, I mean, it, we're a 400 bed hospital, and at one point we were down to 130 patients, but we were still fully staffed because all of them were, you know, most of them were COVID, and so we were rounding a lot with the staff, and they. I mean, they were wearing out and being available to be part of that was just, it was a blessing. And what I know now coming out of it is there's a very, very deep appreciation of chaplaincy within our hospital. And I'm, I'm glad we were allowed to stay in because the staff needed us. And it's, a, you're right, it's the staff all the way from EVS to the doctors. Um, you know, if they're cleaning the rooms, they've got to go in and clean these infected rooms. And that's scary when you have to go in and, you know, you might be risking your life to clean a room so somebody else can go in there. And then the, the same thing with the turnovers and death. And we, we, I've had a couple of, I had a friend die of COVID in a neighboring hospital of ours. And that was really hard because, you know, I was working with the family, just trying to help support them. And we had a, another member of the church came in here and I was in, uh, talked with them. He was doing everything right young guy doing everything right in terms of his treatment plan and what he needed to get done. And he still ended up dying. And th those were hard and being with his wife and, you know, just there's no real good answer on why that had to happen. He had a wife and two, three young kids. And it's, I, I wish 
you know, those are the types of things I think I got in the chaplaincy, figuring I'd find an answer for why these things happen to people. And I've got more questions now than I had ever. But I've also got a much more firm faith that it's it's all it's all okay because you know I don't have to have an answer, but there there are reasons for things, and I don't know I don't need to know the reasons. I just need to be there to to help out others. It was a fascinating experience. I mean, fascinating is not even the right word. But so often when we're with a dying patient, for example, they may have fear, and maybe their family has some anger or upset or concern or big feelings and we see that expressed in so many different ways culturally and depending on their relationships and all those family dramas but with this like you said it was so pervasive it wasn't just the patient that had big feelings every staff person every nurse every doctor every everyone had big feelings and were so sensitive and and I felt like it was just this tornado of a storm and we as chaplains it was our job to stand in the eye of that tornado or that hurricane and push the walls apart like like samson or something and and hold space for as much as we could as long as we could because it people were just hurting no matter what side of politics or no matter what side they were thinking of this or that and and so many people were grieving and I just I just saw chaplaincy unfold in a way that was exponential in a way I had never witnessed before. Yeah, I would I would fully agree with you. It'll be interesting to see, say, in 10 years, looking back historically, how this all played out, because it wouldn't surprise me if there's just more chaplain positions out there because of COVID and this people needing to have that type of spiritual support. Anything else that you want to share before I let you go? I could always keep sharing. But <laughs> <laughs> it has been a, it's been a fun journey. I remember it's I, I don't know the if it, it's in the DNC. If you're engaged in the ministry, then you're called to serve. I remember reading that when I first got into chaplaincy because I always wondered, am I allowed to pick this for myself? Because I really like this, and you know, like at the time the church had no endorsement process, so that and there really were you know, maybe three or four of us in healthcare chaplaincy at all. And I, I remember reading that verse and thinking, well, I'm engaged in this work, so I guess maybe I am. And I just kept praying and, you know, saying, Heavenly Father, if, if this is the right journey for me, just help the doors open. And over the last 25 years, I mean, it's amazing how many doors have opened to, to let me keep doing what I love doing. And I mean, I really do feel like this is, it's where I'm supposed to be. I'm good at it, which is surprising because I, even my own sisters, uh, well, I mean, they grew up with me, but they, they would never have seen this as a career path for me. Most of my friends in high school definitely would never have seen this as a career path for me, but it's, you know, if you're called into this or if you feel like it's the right place, get in, get involved. I will wait a little bit. I don't know if you want me to, Emily, in the politics of training, uh, organizations sure um, but I mean there are multiple training organizations out there and I would say uh, ACPE is the more universally recognized one it's also the one with the least availability particularly in Utah so I'd say get into a training organization whatever one if you can if you don't have any training I think it's important to get in 
if you're really looking to advance in chaplaincy, then I would say it's important to get uh, to find a way to get ACTE training. And there are a lot more online options available now where you can find a clinical placement wherever you're at and then do CPE through ACPE at a center that's outside of your state. We have uh, two positions in our online program that are meant for people who aren't actually in doing any work at our hospital. So there, there are plenty of those. Uh, reach out. I'm always available. If anybody wants to ask me any questions, I'd be happy to help. But I think it, it betters us as members of the church uh, in terms of our ability to be engaged in chaplaincy by making sure we, we look at what are the organizations that are most universally recognized and do the hard work to, to get engaged with those organizations. I think that's the that, that's a, a advice I'd give people who are just starting out. If you're going to pick, pick the hardest one because it's going to actually probably help you in the end and you'll have a better job opportunities. But if you need training and you don't have any any of those organizations out there that do the training, they're going to give you more than you already have and it's worth it to, to get involved with those because it'll give you a peer group and it'll give you, um, there are some very good education programs out there that aren't ACPE that will still help you get through the process of understanding chaplaincy. I love that you explain that because it can be so daunting and just to understand i am a deaf person and <laughs> there are so many initials involved in cpe so many just letters <laughs> that it there, took there me, are. it took me a long time to learn i don't know if i even still have them all figured out but also the verse that you shared is so powerful i don't know how many conversations i had with frank where it was something about how he asked me to do this, here's what I did, and here's what happened because of that, and so now I've been moved to this, and like what you said of, I, di I didn't mean for this to happen, this is just how it's unfold, and he would just, that's great, I think it's fantastic, keep doing what you're doing, and I would think, I, 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 how did this happen? How has this unfolded? I, I am, I am a disaster war zone chaplain but not with the military and not in hospitals anymore so so what what is that what does that make me and 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 how did I get to pick a ministry that I love so much that is not a calling but it is but it's not and you know all those layers of just seeing Heavenly Father say get out of bed today go be yourself and let me do what I'm trying to do. <laughs> he can yeah. just accomplish things that I know is not me because there's no way I could have made any of this happen. Yeah, I need you over there, so I'm going to send you. And okay, I guess that's just what I do. It's my job. So <laughs> it's, it is, I mean, I, I, I could not imagine a better job for me that I would love. I guess the other thing is it's, it's not for everybody, and it's okay if it's not. I, I mean, our CPE process, a lot of it is it's part-time CPE, and it gives people a chance to wade into the pool a bit to see if they even want to swim. And I find, you know, uh, when I started, I, I started seminary teaching. I, I wanted to be a seminary teacher like my dad. And I was in, in the BYU class, and I was so certain that was what I was supposed to do because it was what my dad did, and I didn't have any other clue what I wanted to do with my life. So this is my junior year of college, um, my second semester of my junior year. And the professor came in and he said, and I, I just quoted this to another 
one of my students today. But he, he said, some of you love the idea of being a seminary teacher. Others of you love seminary teaching. My job is to find out which one you are and to help those that love it become seminary teachers and to help those who love the idea realize that it's just an idea. And I think chaplaincy is very much in the same boat. Is it, There are a lot of people who love the idea of being a chaplain and they really think that, you know, this is, so it is, it's a great job, but it's, it's not an easy job and the training is not easy, but it sounds really cool when you tell people what you do. Sometimes, sometimes you tell them and then they walk away from you because they feel like you're going to, you know, just talk to them about their feelings the whole time. But most of the time people think it's really cool. And I find uh, with our CPE students that I train, and even sometimes I'll have a staff chaplain come in who love the idea of being a chaplain because it's something they've heard about and just they're so fascinated with the type of work it is. But when they get involved, they realize they don't really like it. And it's okay to not like it. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that you're not needed elsewhere. It just means that chaplaincy is not your cup of tea. And, well, maybe your cup of decaffeinated tea, cup of hot water, hot chocolate, <laughs> whatever. You can, <laughs> you can fix that for the right audiences. But, you know, it, it, it's okay. It's, but I think uh, CPE is a great way to venture in to see if it might be or volunteering, if they have a volunteer organization or a way to volunteer as a chaplain, it, it's a great way to see if it might be a good path for you. But if it's not, that's all right. You don't don't sweat it. Just realize that your call is somewhere else and Heavenly Father will use you wherever you're placed. But this is, it's a unique job that it takes, it does take a skill set and it takes a dedication to it that not everybody wants to dedicate that amount of time to it. Um, not everybody wants to connect that closely to people. It's, it's hard when you're a hundred percent emotionally invested in people all day long with different people and different events. And then you have to learn how to detach yourself from that emotional investment. That's hard. And so it, it is, it's okay to like the idea, but not necessarily like it. I guess that's what I'm really trying to say. And yeah, yeah there's, there's no shame in it. There's, it's just not. Some people are really called to teach, and that's what they want to do. Some people are called to minister. Some people are called to – we all have different gifts of the Spirit, and those gifts work out in different ways. Do you want to tell people about your Facebook group? Yeah, we do have a Facebook group that people are welcome to uh, contact me or look for it. It's uh, LDS uh, – actually, I think Tyler Montgomery is the one who's over the larger chaplain one. Uh, we have one for those who are APC – uh, certified in ACPE train because we're we're really working on trying to get us together for certification purposes and processes like that. But yeah, they they're welcome to look for it. They can contact me too, and I can get them connected in with the Facebook group. If they're in CPE, uh, we would love to be able to connect. And one of my goals is actually to work with LDS students who are in. CPE programs maybe around the country where they can actually on a monthly basis just check in and talk to each other about their CPE process because I think that'd be really helpful. We have a student in our program currently, there's a student in one of the Bay Area programs and finding ways to connect them would be really, really good. I think that's fantastic. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Thank you so much for talking to us today. You're welcome. This is uh, it's exciting. Thank you for listening to Saints and Humans, a podcast for chaplains, even those of us who are very human and still learning to become saints.
You can follow us by subscribing to the podcast on any podcast player and following us on our Facebook page, Saints and Humans. Thank you.